For the proper setting and context of this epistle, uh, just like today, a growing number of professing Christians had crept into or infiltrated Christ's church. They were false teachers, false prophets, false converts, apostles, and or whoops that abused and perverted the grace of God, which I call greasy gracers or graceaholics. And they did not believe in the Jesus of the scriptures as they denied the lordship of Christ. In this short epistle, Jude will engage in polemics and apologetics, as we too must do as a church. Jude and God warns of the heirs of these infiltrators. He denounces them as God commands the true church to contend for the faith. Today, our 21st century evangelicalism, as we all already know here, desires and even demands that Christians embrace niceness, uh, that we get along with everyone, and to extend our unity and grace to those whom we should not. Their forgiveness is not biblical, but it's rather tolerance. And their love is not biblical, but it rather it's acceptance. And so as we go through this journey, through the epistle of Jude together, let us ask the Holy Spirit to teach, train, and equip all of us to be good Bereans and demonstrators of God's word and the commands that he gives us in this sermon. The division of this chapter will be as the following. In verses 1 through 2 is the opening address and greeting. In verses 3 through 4, which we will also be doing today, is the challenge to hold firm to the faith. And then later in the future weeks will be verses 5 through 7 is a reminder of God's punishment of past disobedience. Verses 8 through 13 will be a denunciation of false teachers. 14 through 16 is the relevance of Enoch's prophecy. 17 through 23 will be the Christian remedy. And then in verses 24 through 25 will be a closing condemnation and acknowledgement of praise. And today again will be the first four verses. Beginning with verses 1 through 2 will be the opening address and greeting. Father, we come before you today, Lord. On this day that you have made, your Sabbath day, the Lord's day, we pray that we will keep it holy today to honor you, to glorify Christ. We ask that your Holy Spirit will teach us, train us, equip us, and encourage all of us, Lord, through your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Beginning with verses 1 through 2. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Verse 1a clearly reveals the author as James as the servant of Christ. This servant is the Greek word doulos, which is a slave or a bond slave to Christ. Every born-again Christian was once upon a time a slave to our sin. And when the Lord saved us, we became a doulos, a slave to Christ. If you're not a slave to Christ, then I would ask you, are you truly saved? We must be a doulos to Christ. One of the fruits or evidence of salvation 
that we should be looking for in professing Christians is, are they in fact a slave to Christ, a doulos to Christ? We cannot be a slave to two or more masters. We must be a slave to God alone and to Christ alone, because God is a jealous God, and he wants to be worshipped alone. Uh, John Calvin said, Many act falsely, and falsely boast to be what they are very far from being. We ought always to examine whether the reality corresponds with the profession. In other words, they profess one thing with the lips, but they do not possess the evidence of regeneration. This verse also tells us of Jude's genealogy. Jude is the brother of James. Though there are other Judes in the New Testament, but Jude clearly identifies himself as being the Jude that is the brother of James. So Jude not only describes himself here as a bond slave and a biological brother to James, in verse 1b, he describes his title as called. His title is called. This called is the Greek word kletos, which means to be invited, to be appointed, especially as a saint, or to be divinely selected and appointed. That's what it means to be called by God. Today, as you all know, most of us came from those institutions, Unbiblical churches or evangelists will give invitations for people to get allegedly saved, to become allegedly saved. But the scriptures are clear uh, that it is the triunity of the Godhead whom invites or calls the lost to become his elect, as God calls us to his bosom for salvation. Hence, this verse solidifies uh, the important doctrine that a true Christian's salvation is preserved all the way to the end. This church embraces the point, all five points of Calvinism, all five points, the doctrines of grace. And this, again, this verse solidifies the doctrine of grace, which is called the perseverance of the saints. Jude said that they are kept for Jesus Christ. As we said before, there is three tenses of salvation. There is We've been saved, and there is being saved, and then there is we will be saved. And those that are truly in Christ will be kept forever, and they'll be persevered in Christ all the way to the end. This word kept here is the Greek word toreho, which means the Lord watches over and guards his elect. He watches his sheep by keeping his eyes upon them to attend to carefully, toreho. Isn't that comforting to know that the Lord is watching over us? It's also scary, too, because he also knows when we're in sin, even when we're thinking of sin. In summary of verse 1, Jude introduced and identified himself as a slave to Christ, called by God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit, and persevered by Christ. That's very encouraging to know that we are covered. He's got us covered. He has us persevered all the way, preserved all the way to the end when we are in glory with him. Every true believer has been called by God, the Father, sanctified, made sanctified, and sanctified by the Holy Spirit, and preserved in Jesus Christ. As R.J. Rush Dooney said, These are the elect of God, 
persons who will heed Jude's warning. They have been made holy by God's grace and preserved from falling away from Jesus Christ because they are the called of God. Close quote. In verse 1, Jude opened with a triple description that born-again Christians are called, sanctified, and preserved. But next, in verse 2, is a unique triple benediction. In verse 2, Jude said, May peace, mercy, and love be multiplied to you. This mercy, peace, and love can only be provided, again, through the triunity of the Godhead. By God's mercy, he calls his elect, draws them to his Son, whom is the Prince of Peace, and then by his Holy Spirit, is the power of his Holy Spirit, we are loved, and now we can love him and love others. It's an upward, inward, outward, three-dimensional relationship. Upward to the Father and Christ, inward amongst Christians, and then outward our love manifests to others hopefully through evangelism efforts. As another said, and I quote, Mercy is his compassion, peace is his gift of quiet confidence in the work of Jesus, and love is his generosity in granting us his favors and meeting our needs, end of quote. And this all comes exclusively for his saved sheep only, not for the lost world. That means, Christians, you are special in the eyes of God. You are a special, peculiar, royal priesthood. Amen? Next in verses 3 through 4, the challenge and command to hold firm to the faith. We're going to zoom in and spend more time on verse 3 than anywhere actually in the entire epistle, probably. We've been moving fast, and we will slow down for verse 3. Beloved, Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in, unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ." In verse 3a, Jude begins his salutation by calling fellow Christians beloved. Christians, you are beloved in the eyes of God. And you are beloved in the eyes of Jude as well. His love for the Lord's church is plentiful, plentiful. Then in verse 3b, it says that he was eager to write them in regards to their common salvation or the faith that they all have in common with each other. Remember, God through Jude is writing to them then and to us now. But in verse 3c, he tells them that it's necessary to appeal to them and to contend for the faith. If this warning to contend for the faith was needed then, then how much more is it needed to contend for the faith today? in the 21st century. Even amongst the reform movement, there's a push for us to compromise, uh, to be contemporary, or to be in unity with those whom we should not, or to be economical, etc., etc. Jude's appeal was not negotiable, nor was it optional. It was necessary, a necessary appeal 
and a command to admonish them and to admonish us to contend for the faith. This contend for the faith is the Greek word epigonizma. Epigonizma. It is a verb and it is a present infinitive, meaning the Christian struggle is continuous, that we are to epigonizma throughout the entire Christian life. As Calvin said, Jude is literally exhorting you, but as he points out the end of his counsel, the sentence ought to be thus expressed. What I have rendered to help the faith by contending means the same as to strive in retaining the faith and courageously to sustain the contrary assaults of Satan. He reminds them that in order to persevere in the faith, various contests must be encountered and continual warfare maintained. He says that faith had been once delivered, that they might know that they had obtained it for this end, that they might never fail or fall away. And Calvin agrees that we must be engaged in this war, in this warfare, as we contend for the faith, epigonisma. The noun form is contender, and the verb is to contend. Therefore, as Christians, Jude is saying that they then and us now are to be contenders who contend for the faith. This contending for the faith is both offensive and defensive. It includes apologetics, being on the defense or defending the faith, and it also includes polemics as a polemicist, being on the offense or fighting against the error, rebuking and or exposing. It also means, in the Greek, to struggle for, to fight for, or to fight against, to earnestly contend for or to contend against, or an intense effort to wrestle with or to agonize. I actually typed the word, the Greek word, epigonisma, to a brother in a text, and believe it or not, the smartphone's smarter than I thought. It actually it actually automatically corrected the spelling of epigonisma and it changed it to agonize. That's, that, that's pretty profound. I think I'm going to keep that cell phone. That's exactly what it means in, in the English, from the Greek to the English, is to agonize in the church. Sometimes we want easy street. Sometimes we want main street or lazy street. But as Christians, we must agonize for the faith, contend for the faith. We must engage in apologetics and polemics. We must not let these things settle in our minds in complacency. We must stand for the uncompromisingly, for the inerrancy, the infallibility, and sufficiency of God's Holy Spirit-inspired scriptures and of his doctrines within. However, as we contend without compromise, this is where we have to be very careful. We must do so, pardon my unscholarly language, but we must do so without being argumentative jerks or delivering personal attacks. You see it on social media, ad hominem attacks, apologists digging against people and calling them names, making personal attacks. That is not true apologetics. That is not a biblical, healthy contending for the faith. 
As one author said, quote, Yet in contending for the faith, the believer must speak and act as a Christian. As Paul wrote, A servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach. He must contend without being contentious, and testify without ruining his testimony. Close quote. We must contend without being contentious, and we must testify without blowing our testimony. I'm guilty. I've blown my testimony trying to contend for the faith. I have. I'm guilty of sin. And when we do, we must repent. I further describe this contending without being contentious or without being a jerk as walking a theological tightrope, towing that thin line while having the heart of a dove but the mind of a serpent. Or as Paul said, we must walk circumspectly. We must be so careful how we contend for the faith. We contend by telling them the truth in love. However, we must trust in the Holy Spirit to change them, lest our contending be in the flesh. It's not my job to change their mind. I'm going to let the Holy Spirit do that. The changing of the mind, metanoia, repenting, comes from the Lord. My job is just to be a truth teller in love, contend for the faith, epigonisma, to agonize for the truth in love and pray, Lord willing, that he would grant them repentance and that he would change their mind. You see, if we enjoy arguing, if we enjoy quarreling, then we need a checkup from the neck up. Additionally, listen to this. This is great. Additionally, this contend for the faith is a hapax legomenon. A hapax legomenon is a word or words in the Bible that is mentioned only one time in the scriptures. Now, I've heard scholars say that whenever you see a hapax legomenon in the Bible, that it's really not that important. I actually highly disagree with that. Because God put a hapax legomenon, epigoniza, in there to contend for the faith only one time and one time only, that's why we ought to really zoom in on that, on that, on that command, that verb, epigonisma, to contend for the faith. God put it there only one time because it is very, very special. And therefore, this contend for the faith reads like the front page of the Herald Examiner. Section A, column 1. You see the heralds in the old days. They stood in the corner with the newspaper. Extra, extra. Read all about it. Epigonisma. God commands Christians to contend for the faith. It's a hapax legomenon. That's special. That's important. And it comes out and it just grabs us. So take heed to those words, to this command. Chew on it and digest this hapax legomenon, this epigonisma. This command to contend and agonize for the faith. And so let us pay particular attention to this verb. Let us be a church that contends for the faith and for sound doctrine. And I think we've been doing a pretty good job at that, but let's continue. Remember, it is a, an infinitive it's a present infinitive to continually contend for the faith. It's not just the one time I've contended for the faith. Lord, I've done my job. No, it means continually throughout our Christian lives. 
And let's always do so led by the Holy Spirit and not our own flesh. Continuing in verse 3c, Though he said, Jude said, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. But he ends that verse with that was once for all delivered to the saints. He ends the verse with this, once for all delivered to the saints. Notice it does not say once upon a time. It says once for all delivered to the saints. This means the canon is complete. The doctrine is finished. Nothing shall be added and nothing shall be taken away from the scriptures. God's sufficient canonized scriptures have been delivered to us once and for all. Amen? This is why we must reject modern day apostles or prophets, those who claim I have a, I have a revelation or a special revelation or I have a word from the Lord for you today. I've been there I've said those things. I thought I was doing God's will, but I wasn't. I was wrong. Hence, thank God again, I had to repent. (laughs) This is why we must reject all cults and all religions outside of our biblical born-again Christianity. Our born-again Christianity, the only kind of Christianity that's in the Bible, you must be born again, needs no improvement nor a move towards being more contemporary or or relevant or pragmatic. Next, in verse 4, the last verse of this study, Jude reveals the nature of the threat. The nature of the threat. In verse 4, he said, For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. You know, we've had this happen to this church. Some have crept in. Sneaky. We didn't know they were false teachers or heretics until later, but some of them made it known the minute they walked in. Some of them crept in and some of them just barged in. But we've had it happen here. And as a church, we had to be watchful. But some of the key words and phrases or adjectives we will examine in this verse are the following. Jude mentions certain people that crept in, that crept in unnoticed, whom long ago were designated for what? For this condemnation, and that they were ungodly people who pervert God's grace to be sensual or sexually immoral, and they denied the Father, and they denied the Lordship of Jesus Christ. They had a different Jesus. Scripture warns some will have another Jesus, another spirit, another holy, another another uh, another Lord. In verse four a, he says, "For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation. These certain people." are ungodly people. They are false teachers, heretics, and or people that abuse the grace of God. And with Satan's help, they were able to creep in unnoticed. Where did these ungodly creeps come from? It says, who long ago were designated for this condemnation. That's the answer. They were designated long ago to creep in for this condemnation. Long ago, God foreordained or decreed these ungodly men to be what they are then 
and to be what they are today. I read a lot of commentaries on this verse. A lot of Reformed comment- commentators believe that, that they became ungodly uh, because of their own volition. I, I strongly disagree with that. Because God is sovereign. Yes, they choose to sin. They choose to sin just like we do. These ungodly people choose to sin. But God is sovereign. And he ordains whom will be saved and whom will be lost. So God himself designated this ungodly people group for this condemnation. And so what do we do as a church? What do we do as a church? As Mountain Reformed Baptist Church, what do we do about this threat? Every true believer within this congregation and within the congregations of their own local churches have a general duty to be watchful for certain people that creep in. But it is the primary or specific responsibility of the elders of the church to be watchful and to protect the sheep from wolves. But generally, it is everybody's responsibility. And Calvin said this about this verse, We hence learn that a good and faithful pastor ought wisely to consider what the present state of the church requires, so as to accommodate his doctrine to its wants. Moving on to verse 4b. It says they are ungodly people. The ungodly people are reprobates, false teachers, apostates, and heretics. Some of them hold positions of leadership within our Christendom, such as pastors, elders, professors, clergymen, chaplains. And they abuse God's grace to suit their own sinful desires. Next, in verse 4c, he further described their agenda. Verse 4c, who pervert, these ungodly people, who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. As a born-again Christian, and now as a Reformed Baptist, I delight in the grace and mercies that God has given his church and that God has given this church as well as this universal church and the grace of God that in which he saved his church by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But it is a grave error and egregious sin to abuse his grace to justify our sin or to justify a lifestyle contrary to his scriptures. Calvin said this. Yes, I read a lot of Calvin on this this epistle. He said, Before we teach that salvation is obtained through God's mercy alone, the Papists, the Popes, the Roman Catholics, etc., accuse us of this crime. But why should we why should we use words to refute their effrontery? Since we everywhere urge repentance, the fear of God, and the newness of life, and since they themselves not only corrupt the whole world with the most with the worst examples, but also by their ungodly teaching take away from the world true holiness and the pure worship of God. Though I'd rather think that those whom Jude speaks were like the libertines of our time, but it will be more evident from what follows. Close quote. Jude says that these greasy gracers, these ungodly people, denied our Lord. We've all denied the Lord somehow. Even as a Christian, as a truly saved 
doulos to Christ, I had denied the Lord. As a doulos to Christ, I had denied the Lord Jesus. Sometimes maybe by my silence because I was afraid to speak up and defend a Christian that was being picked on out in public somewhere. I denied Christ. There's many ways of denying the Lord, but here's many. Here's some including but not limited to. These ungodly people, these greasy gracers, they denied the sovereignty of God the Father. They denied the Lord in Christ by their hypocrisy. They denied the Lord by their sexually immoral living. They denied the Lord with their sensuality and their licentiousness. They denied the Lord with their antinomianism, which means to be anti-law. They don't believe in the law and the new covenant, God's law. They denied him with a watered-down or false gospel. They pervert sound doctrine, and they deny sound doctrine. It's many, some of the many ways that they denied the Lord. The world wrongfully tells us, as I saw on a social media mem, I want to make sure I get that out there. There's a lot of controversy on the Internet lately about, about plagiarism, isn't there? That's why I made sure I plugged Jihad, Pastor Jihad, as it was... I'm not going to be accused of plagiarism. Well, I think we all have somehow unknowingly. But there's a Facebook meme out there, and it says, The world wrongfully tells us to respect others' beliefs. But the Bible tells us, if anyone preaches another gospel, let him be accursed. And I added to that Facebook meme, and to expose them, and mark them, and rebuke them, and to contend for the faith. Thank you, Lord, for this beautiful epistle that you've given us, Lord, for such a time like this. Father God, we take this seriously, that this is not just a warning, not just a bedtime story, but it's a command to us today as well in the 21st century. Oh, Lord, by your grace and your power and your Holy Spirit, equip us as a church and able as a church to be watchful of these things, to stand and be courageous men and women of God as we contend for the faith. Help us in that area, Lord, and help us remain steadfast in our faith all the way to the end. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.